well, what are some of the reasons why you would normally go to church? You know, why would you go to church? Good child care, maybe free child care. Inspiration, maybe guilt. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you need a pick-me-up, maybe relational capital. A friend in Oklahoma City who became a Christian after going to a church uh, for several months, and the reason why he started to go to that church altogether was to get business for his law practice. An incredible thing, and thankfully the power of the Spirit woke up his heart. But why do you go to church? Now, God does command us to come together and gather together in order to worship, but we also come because we want to grow in godliness. One of the common ways of grace that God builds up His people is through worshiping Him and them worshiping Himself. We want to change toward Christ-likeness and away from our sin. From the Word, we want to know as much of God as He reveals to us. We want to know as much about ourselves as He'll also reveal to us. In John Calvin's famous works, The Institutes of a Christian Religion, Calvin begins his work, and it's a long tome, uh, with a life-altering opening statement. He was 26 when he wrote this, but he started with nearly all the wisdom that we possess. That is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Calvin argues that we must know ourselves to really know who God is, and to really know who God is, we have to see who He is from His Word. What we must know, though, if you think of how you can get to know yourself, there are thousands of activities that you can participate in to to really know the inner you, right? Whether it's a personality test or maybe a rigorous academic pursuit to really know what you are from the inside out, but what Scripture shows is we must know ourselves as we truly are. And it's really revealed to us in the very beginning of our scriptures in Genesis 3. We must know ourselves from our nakedness in Genesis. That exposes a swarming host of infirmities. All the way through to the book of Revelation. Where Calvin would then say that grasping all of that, we recognize the the feeling of our own ignorance. Our vanity. Our poverty in spirit and our illness and soul. And this... Understanding this allows us to recognize that the Lord alone rests as the one of true light and of true wisdom. He is the only one who was of complete sound virtue, full abundance of every good and pure sense of righteousness. Friends, why do we come together and gather in order to worship? Because God is holy and awesome. And when we recognize who we are, we realize the utter need that we have of His grace and his awesomeness in our own lives. Today, we come to a passage in the scriptures from the book of Proverbs that gives us a clear instruction. In many ways, it's just practical good life advice. But in totality, we see the the truth of God being slightly and carefully, bit by bit, shown to us. And so our sermon, our exposition, coming from chapter 6 of the book of Proverbs, verses 1 through 19, will give us, I think, three very helpful, long-lasting lessons on seeing God in seeing ourselves for who we really are. Your Bible in front of you probably helps you out by seeing the divisions of what my sermon will hopefully be in the first part of chapter 6. There are just spaces in between the paragraphs, so I'm not brilliant in breaking this down. It, It really helps us out to just look at how the Word was written in front of us. These could be taken as individual lessons, those different 
those different paragraphs. If you're a parent, you could, you could work on one a day or one a week or maybe even for my wife and I, maybe one a year of just drastically putting ourselves to the test of Scripture. But they come to us as a whole section. And so the first bit of this section is verses 1 through 5 where it talks about money, but it actually reveals the heart of man. And then the second section in verses 6 through 11, it speaks about the discipline needed to build up your life and godliness but it really just exposes your heart at the same time. And then the the third section in verses 12 through 19, this this speaks of the fellowship that you may or may not keep and what God likes and doesn't like, but really it shows, well, not just your heart's natural bend, but also behind it the holiness of God altogether. So I'd like to take these three sections and speak to you in reverse by going to the third and then the second and then the first, because these types of proverbial sections would have been regularly read over and over and over again to where you would know if you're at point two, you would, you would know even without reading point one where you are in this fashion of the scriptures. But there's a big question that I want us to continually ask as we hear from this word together. Who is God and who are you in relation to God? Who is God and who are you in relation to God? The personal nature of Solomon's words, the author of this text, are particular in the first part where he's speaking more on a personal level to what appears to be his son. And then the father figure speaks to this person, but then it seems to carry off a more distant relationship as it goes on. He he starts off saying by my son and you and your and yourself and a second my son, but toward the end of the passage, it's almost like there is no, no character between them at all. And so we want to start with the the third section of this text, and point number one in verses 12 through 19, what does God hate? Possibly the most striking and drastic couple of words in this passage. This is intentionally a stunning question because far too many of us don't think about what God hates. But here, the proverbial author brings it to our attention. In this passage, this part of the passage, in verses 12 through 19, could be broken down in two other sections, 12 through 15, and then most notably 16 through 19, where it talks about what God despises. But the theme is the same, where we see in verse 14, it speaks of someone continually showing discord. And then in verse 19, it describes one who sows discord. God's word looks at a, imagine for yourself, a sly, disruptive person And calls him, look at verse 12, a worthless, wicked man. Now, dictionary-wise, this person literally means without benefit or providing no profit. You know, all of us have done a group assignment in school, and there's always that one person there that we would just call worthless, and hopefully it's not you, right? Where I, I never liked group projects, not because I was better than the other people, but it actually forced me to work on it, though. Here, the passage is calling this person a worthless person, but also describing them as wicked at the same time. And there's a sinister connotation that comes up with this. If, if you were to trace the word language, or the language here of this word throughout the Old Testament and even to the New Testament, you would see that there is a common use, though building up height and its intensity all the way into the New Testament, where in 2 Corinthians, it's written, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15 what accord has Christ with, and it would have been this word, and it was describing Satan himself. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
And so this passage is clearly about those who sin aggressively, though slyly. It condemns, uh, we see in verse 14, the, the wicked sowing discord. Someone who plants seeds of doubt or desiring an argument. Now, in no way is this passage condemning the idea of asking questions in a community of faith. Seeking answers with friends and believers around you. Going to the Lord and just calling out to Him and saying, I don't know what's happening. Or teach me. Or help me understand your ways. What this word is describing is someone who is intentionally trying to stir up the hornet's nest. And how is this done? Well, the text outlines that in verse 13. Through little acts of nonverbal communication. Look where it says there. Winks with his eyes. Signals with his feet. Points with his finger. Have you ever sat in the back of a meeting or a lecture? And you see someone kind of lean back and nod to a friend as if both of you now know that it's time to make fun of the, the preacher up in front where he's doing one of his things again. You know, maybe the speaker has a habit where it's just disruptive to you, and so you might shuffle your feet to bring attention to, look at this guy up front. Or maybe even you motion to someone to your left or your right, and you go, <whistles> you know? And what the, what the proverbial author is doing here is saying that this is causing disunity amongst God's people in the context of worship, in our case, in church, or in your own home in the pursuit of godliness amongst other Christians, or for some of you who are on ball teams, or you're in classes together when you're around other friends. Look at verse 15. It says, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Or put another way, if we're reading the Proverbs through the lens of Christ like we've been doing for six weeks now, I will punish that behavior because my son died to bring ungodly people together in unity. Don't disrupt what God has brought together for everyone's good. And look at how intensely the weight of this text is portrayed. Look at verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run for evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, you'll know sometimes in the Old Testament there are uses in a literary form, much like we would have repetition to highlight something of importance. There are times when particular numbers are used in the Old Testament to, to raise our awareness about something big is going to come. And, and one of those ways is saying a number, but then adding one number to it. So in this case, saying six but then adding a seventh. It'll mention something like a list or a, a set list like in verse 16. Six things and then add to it. So when you read verse 16, you shouldn't recognize that there's a math issue here or maybe, maybe the author didn't have an eraser, he wrote six down and no, 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 what I mean is seven things, but rather he's trying to get your attention at what that seventh thing is. The last item in the list is the one that matters to most because in many ways it paints a portrait of our aim and tone of the text. Out of everything the Lord hates the most, the one who sows discord among brothers paints a black picture over all of us. This is the key to understanding the six. In verse 17, where it says, the Lord hates haughty eyes. Why? Because those haughty eyes sow discord. The Lord hates a lying tongue. Why? Because that slanderous, gossiping mouth sows discord among brothers and sisters that belong to the Lord. And the list goes on and on. 
Friend, there are things that God hates with a passion. And our scriptures describe them from front to back. You could go almost to any book and see what displeases God. Uh, To use anthropomorphic language, it visually churns his stomach when we do this. When his own children despise his instruction. Uh, A theologian named John Feinberg in his book, No One Like Him, The Doctrine of God, has been helpful to me in thinking through this this week and also in weeks previous. He says, not only does God hate sin... But scripture shows that he must and will judge sin. For a morally perfect God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. We see this theme repeatedly in the epistles and in the Psalms. Not only does God punish individuals for their sins, but also we see in the book of Revelation where it shows repeatedly the outpouring of eschatological wrath against the corporate wickedness of the nations. Because of God's hatred of sin. An awesome power of his judgments. His people are warned to worship only him. For it says in the scriptures, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And even in the New Testament, believers are encouraged to worship and serve God staunchly. For our God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews 12. But also, hang on here, this is not just a doctrinal thing that we need to grasp in understanding the the wickedness of our own sin and the intensity of God's passion towards sin, but also we see a Trinitarian perspective throughout the scriptures of how God deals with sin. God's hatred of sin is actually Trinitarian. It's not just an accident. It's not just Old Testament stuff or mean God the Father stuff, but God the Father shows his hatred of sin in his casting down from heaven to hell the angels that sinned, or his driving Adam and Eve out of paradise, or bringing a flood to the world, or raining fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, and on and on and on we can just see in the scriptures. But in nothing more than by the condemnation of sin in the very flesh of Christ. When Christ would suffer in the place of his people, And he would bring to himself the very wrath of God against sin. But it's also Trinitarian in that the Son of God has given sufficient proof of his love of righteousness and his hating of iniquity. And he's done this by denouncing the sins of the Pharisees in time, but also his severity against the swindlers in the temple and by his telling men to go and sin no more. But it's also Trinitarian in that the Holy Spirit is not only grieved by sinful actions, and behavior of men, but is aggravated by them so as to turn to be their enemy and fight against them, we see in Isaiah chapter 63. Now you might temporarily go to this passage, read these couple of things, and seek this for how it's intended. This is great advice. This is good for you to live by and understand Don't stir up dissension. We all been on a team before where there's that one person and we go, I don't want to be like that guy. Don't rebel. But this section actually exposes the heart of us and the good and holiness of God. Look at verse 14. This is where it helps expose us with a perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Now, our temptation is to naturally go to the verbs because we are an action-oriented people. We want to see what is being done, but take note of the adjective and the noun in that passage, the perverted heart. Friend, we need to recognize that from this passage, God hates sin, and this is very bad news to us. 
Because we can read ourselves in the testimony of this word, and we are not the good guy. We are the one who sins against brothers and sisters. We are the one who sins against a holy God. We recognize what is true of us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're just visiting, maybe you came in because someone invited you, maybe you just stumbled into church because you wanted to come on Sunday morning, and maybe you have the temptation to think that you are different than us, or maybe you think that we think that we're different than you, you need to recognize that the scripture is clear that all of us, you included, me included, we are all sinners by nature. All of our hearts are broken, you could say, or sinful, or have blots on them like a balloon that has been popped, we find ourselves actually in opposition of a holy and wrathful God. So a big question is, who is God? He's against sin. And who are you? You're a sinner, and God is against your sin, and he detests it. But secondly, we see from this passage, how should you live in light of those two truths? How should you live here? We see in verses 6 through 11. Our text answers exactly how you and I should live on a regular basis. If you ever want to have a pep talk on how you ought to live or seize the day or what 2021 should be like, it says there, be like an ant, not a slug. The call of the text is for you, called a slugger, to go to or to be an ant. Instead of being slow and hesitant toward godliness, this person should be decisive, should be active, should be candid about their faith and belief that the natural man's motto is, don't rush, chill, 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 it's all fine, we're going to be okay. But Proverbs chapter 26 heightens this attempt in verse 14 where it says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. I don't know about you, I've said here before, I don't sleep very well, I'm not a very good sleeper, but according to Brooke, I am very disruptive in my lack of sleep tossing and turning, getting nowhere in life by turning over and over again and again. That's what a lazy person looks like. You might think you're being very active, but you're just a hinge that holds a door. You, you aren't going anywhere, this text points out. What this means is you are lazy, constantly taking the easy road, being soft, a, a pushover in your own faith, or what this scripture says, a worthless person. One who has the same job title as Satan himself. But let's be honest. You might think of your rap sheet. You might think of your resume. You might think of your weekly uh, path. You might think of all the things that you did yesterday on your day off. And you think, man, if, if everyone does what I do on my day off, this world would be a better place. We would have been to Mars 40 years ago. But let's be honest, friends. There's, there's a sluggard tendency in all of us. We know this because the lazy person appears all over the Proverbs. There's a reason why Proverbs repeats itself again and again, because just like you and I might need a pep talk before a big test, you and I also need to be instructed bit by bit all day long on what is naturally prone in our own hearts. We are naturally lazy. And there's a direct question in verse 9 where it asks, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? This sluggard is indecisive, even in his own bed. He has no answer for the morning. He has no cause that would take determination. He's so lazy, he wouldn't even give you an answer of, I'm just too lazy. In Proverbs chapter 26, the lazy man is described. I think of this as, imagine yourself at a giant banquet table with all of the delicacies in front of you, right? The lazy person is the one who goes for food and grabs it. 
and doesn't even bring it back to his own mouth. Friend, I wonder if you think about your own spiritual walk, how that might describe you. All the books you can imagine on your shelf, all the Bible studies you could sign up for, all the friends you could surround yourself with, all the likes that you can put on Facebook, all the podcasts you can download, all the things that you put in your life, yet you won't even bring it to your own heart. Is that your faith? Is this your walk? Is this you as a disciple, starving because you won't even bring to your mouth what the Lord provides? Is this you as a disciple maker, looking around and going, I don't know who to pour into. Friend, look around. There are like 200 people in here. Pick one and go. Also, though, the sluggard in Proverbs is not just a lazy person, but a coward. They won't face the truth or the reality of Scripture, godly truth. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 13 describes it like this. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the street. Or put another way, it's dangerous outside. I'll just stay indoors. And we need to recognize that what is possibly outside of our home is just a job. It's just a friend. It's just a family member. It's just a mission field that God has placed you in. And he's never instructed you to be a lazy coward, has he? I'd love to show you biographies of missionaries. I need to read them again myself, who went into the jungle at the risk of being beheaded. And they were. Or they went across the continent at the risk of getting malaria. And they did. And they went into an orphanage to risk catching of a lung disease. And they did. Or they went next door at the risk of being made fun of. And they did. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, officer, or ruler. How are we to live? We're to go to the ant and take notes. Watch them work. Watch them work together. Watch their mission, their strength, their determination, their energy, their conviction. Mess up the dirt in front of the ant and watch them pick up the pieces and keep moving. Look at verse 7, though. It says they do this without any chief, officer, or ruler. There's no boss ant with a whip cracking. Each ant internally is at the service of the kingdom. Or in verse 8, it says that she prepares the bread in the summer. The summer is obviously to us very hot, but that's no bother to the ant. She gets her job done. Or the ant in verse 8 gathers her food in the harvest. Tomorrow's catch is from today's fishing. The ant today prepares the joy to be had tomorrow. She prepares, she works, she serves. She is certainly not lazy, but the sluggard procrastinates, treating each moment like it's no big deal. Or in verse 10, this is what the sluggard really wants. Look at that. A little sleep, a little slumber, five more minutes, maybe tomorrow. Maybe I'll call them later. Maybe I'll tell them the gospel next year. When I was younger, uh, there was a very famous commercial produced by the United States Army, and the tagline was, be all you can be. Uh, Friends, here's the real kicker here. We often want to do more than we have the capability of thinking that we can do on our own. But the, the message of this commercial was always, be all you can be. And it was always with the tagline of people like literally climbing mountains. And you watch it and you go, I want to do that. 
Or they're climbing over walls and you go, I want to do that too. Or they're shooting down enemies with lasers and you're like, I want to do that. And they're saying, be all you can be. And it's like, I will be everything I can be. Seize the day, go do it. But we've got to realize something that is clear in scripture. If point number one was you're a sinner and God hates sin, that means you're in big trouble. And point number here, or point number two says that you are lazy and you are naturally on your own, spiritually incapable of doing anything for yourself or anyone else. What the truth of the scripture exposes is that I may see a commercial or a tagline that says, be all that you can be, and there's a lot of physical ability that I can be all that I can be, but spiritually we have to remember that we are unable to do anything without God's grace in our life. We are unable to achieve anything outside of him working in us, without him guiding us, without him directing us. On our own, we would pick What we saw in Proverbs 1, the wicked path. On our own, we would deviate from the spouse of our youth that we saw in Proverbs 1 and in Proverbs 5. On our own, we would just be lazy turning over in our own bed because we think we've got it all in control. The Olympics are hopefully happening this summer after not happening last summer. And the one thing I love about watching the Olympics is I love watching the foot races because I'm not a fast person. And I love watching those races and go, man, those guys or those gals, they literally just ran 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. I don't need a stopwatch now. I need a sundial, right? And so you see these guys running or these girls running, and there's always this terrible gut feeling that you see every time you watch the Olympic where someone who's been training their entire lives, representing their entire country, aiming for this one feet to beat someone, and they start limping 10 yards in. Maybe they pulled a hammy. Maybe they had a bad start. Maybe, maybe everyone else was just way faster than they were and they just wanted to quit, right? But what's better than being third? Oh, man, I, I hurt something on my leg. <laughs> Not that I've ever thought about doing that, right? <laughs> oh, man, you hit a ground ball in baseball. Oh, they're probably going to get me out. I don't want to beat it. You and I are incapable of anything righteous outside of the grace and mercy of our God. We need to recognize that God is holy and is displeased with our laziness or our deadness in our sins. So the big question again, who who are you? You're lazy. Or what the scriptures call, you are dead in your sins. You You are on the opposite side of God and his grace and holiness. Who is God? And what is he doing? That's a great question. And point number three here we see in Verses 1 through 5, you and I have a glimpse of who God is from this passage, from what he's shown us of himself and how he has acted toward us as his people. You and I, the Bible says that we are made in God's image. We are the only thing created in the universe who are made in his very image. We are his image bearers, you could say. But we are completely unlike him because of the first two points. We are sinful. And we are unable to be holy or good like him. We we are like him and we are also not like him. And our unlikeness of him is a very, very big deal. Something that we need to understand ourselves by and we definitely need to understand him by because he is so much not like us. If everything around us, in effect, is to point us towards him, then we need to know who he is. But sometimes we put ourselves in trying to go towards him or trying to puff ourselves up, we place ourselves, this text will show, under the boot of some other people. 
Look at the text there. It portrays people who are in the debt of others. My son, if you have put up a security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you have snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Now in verse 1, when you are to, when you have put up a security for someone, it means that you will take a hit for their debt if need be. Now some of you, when you first bought a house, you were unable to buy a house on your own, so you had what is called a cosigner, meaning that someone would join you in the risk of you not being able to pay back the bank, right? So if you couldn't pay it back, the bank knows who to go after, the bank just didn't see you as not good enough, so you needed someone else to make this whole. It's a, it's a pretty normal thing. But, but here's what God's Word is saying. From a wisdom perspective, you're putting yourself at someone else's speculative risk whenever you do this. Your partner can actually bring you down. And in going in cooperation with other people, what Solomon is telling his son is he is saying you're not in the danger of being brought down, but you're already being brought down because you're under the boot. Of someone else. Now, one commentary, and I love this, actually quoted from the Federal Trade Commission to help explain the totality of this. And I don't know what you're thinking. That's really exciting stuff. And it is. So let me read to you from the Federal Trade Commission. What this is paralleling from this is how risky it is to place yourself not only in the debt of a bank, but also in the debt of someone else, is you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect the debt from the borrower. The point is, if someone isn't qualified for a loan, they're potentially dragging you down. Now, as a son of an actual banker, I think loans are very good. And I encourage you all, and I will give you a number of a banker that I know and trust. But two things in this passage are being made very clear to us. God wants us to be as generous as possible with people around us, and he also does not want us to gamble with his good gifts. Both are commanded throughout Scripture. Generosity and not gambling or not taking on risk that is ungodly, yet to risk someone's assets and reputation for a neighbor or a friend is to Solomon. Think about this. From a father to a son, just giving his son wise advice, it is unwise, much less for a stranger. Don't do it, he is saying. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, where God tells his people to loan money to the poor without any strings attached. And on top of this, at the seventh year, all of the debts of the nation would be canceled. Think about that. The the generosity that God is wanting to build inside of his covenant group. God is incredibly generous to his people. This is the thing that we ought to see from this part of the passage, that God is generous to his people. He is Always, or he always has been and always will be. So followers of God should also be generous people. In a world of tight-fisted, reckless and ungenerous people, God's people are gracious and to be filled with mercy. And even in the New Testament, in the book of Philemon, the apostle Paul uh, sent Onesimus back to Philemon and said, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So he sees someone, he says, go back to where you owe and tell them that if you owe them anything, charge it to my account. 
Now, here's the difference. In Philippian, or in Philemon, Paul says, what this guy owes, put it on my tab. Great friend, right? But the difference in that passage and in the Proverbs is that Proverbs is saying, don't count on the mercy of others. That's unwise. You might send your son off to college and say, be careful. We've treated you with mercy and grace, but the world is a dark, dark place, and people will take advantage of you. Don't be silly or presumptuous on others' mercies. That's a bad idea. Why, though? Well, God wants everyone, the the instruction from this text is God wants every one of us to take responsibility for our own lives. And if we put ourselves in the hands of someone else, that's typically bad news. That's a bad risk. And what God's Word is saying is it's irresponsible. Look at verse 3. Then do this, my son. Save yourself. Get out of that agreement. Basically, go away from that debt. Take responsibility. Look at the end of verse 3, though. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. In other words, pester, harass. Get out of the hands of verse 5, the fowler. But here's where we can understand the gospel from this text. We have all placed ourselves in debt because of our sin. And you cannot get out on your own. And no one else can get you out of this debt. That's the reality of the gospel. God is holy, you are sinful, and you on your own cannot do anything about it. Friend, the the urge or the, the churning of your own stomach, recognizing the totality of your own sin, it should sit there. You are not righteous. You are not credit worthy. You are not risk free. You are actually a walking, talking liability. Your sin puts you at odds with God. Your decision puts you at odds with His holiness, His majesty, and His glory. But here is also the good news. We see this in the book of Job, that the suffering saint says to God, Lay down a pledge for me with you, O Lord. Who is there who will put up a security for me? In other words, Job is calling out to God, God, I am a bad risk and I need your help. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need you to cover me in a way that no one else can. I need you to free me from all of my debts, my past, my present, my future debts. Friends, you need to know that at the cross of Calvary, Jesus not only wrote paid in full across the record of our debts, but he also tore up the spreadsheet and the ledger which would ever hold our debts to our shame. All of our sins were nailed to the cross. When we celebrate Easter this next weekend, the reality here, friend, is that the death of Jesus is what paid for our sins. It's what rescued us from where we were in the pit. Now, you can move on freely from this passage. You can move on and just see this as good advice about don't borrow money, don't be lazy, don't have bad friends. Or you can see this through the gospel lens where if you are in Christ, you are free and clear with God forever. And if you are not a Christian, what this scripture would call out to you is turn to the one who pays your debt. Turn to the one who covers your sin. Turn to the one who not only covered your sin, but placed himself in the very realm of the wrath of God for your sins. Friend, how do you think about God? He's holy here, recognizing that we are sinful and understanding that he is a redemptive savior. The wisdom from this passage 
is the wisdom from all of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of the good life. But let's say that it starts with you, a sinner. You're unable, but he is a conquering Savior. There is a story of long ago, kind of during the Puritan era of American history, where a slave was being sold at an auction. And he was a much-desired slave because of his capability and his notoriety, and people were bidding up and up and up. But there was one man who came from the crowd and kept bidding up no matter what people would bid. You imagine $100, you imagine $1,000, it was always 101 Bob, 1,001 Bob. That was that guy at the auction block, and he wanted to make sure that he could get this slave no matter what anyone else was going to pay. And finally, the auction was over. He had purchased the slave for himself, and he went up to pay where he had to pay with the auctioneers, And he said, I I have a question, not only on what I have to pay, but now what do I have to pay to set this man free? And the auctioneer just looked up and said, you just bought the slave for like a million dollars. Why would you let him free? And he said, what's the price? And the guy just looked around. He said, everything you've got. And he gave everything that he had. And he let the slave free and go. And so naturally, someone went up to the slave and said, what are you going to do now? This has been quite a day for you. You were just worth a ton, and now you're free forever. What are you going to do? And the guy said, I don't know that man's name, but I'm going to go to his farm, and I know that I can work with him. Friend, we've got to realize what the Savior has done for us in our sin. He has paid the cost of our lives, but then he has set us free to where we can delight and enjoy him forever. The truth from the wisdom of the book of Proverbs is that God has given you the good life in his son, Jesus, and you can have it forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the truth of your text. We are thankful for the love that you have not only shown to us by teaching us about yourself, but we are grateful for the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. Our Father, we pray that we would live for him in a way that honors you. We pray that we would worship you as you deserve. We pray that we would place ourselves under your care, knowing that it is good, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are loving. Lord, we pray that you would transform us and make us into the likeness of your glorious Son. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.